Lord, thank you so much for friends to gather, gather together and even able to sing funny songs about birthdays and for Bill's many years. Lord, thank you for watching over him and being with him. Thank you, Lord, for our parents and kids night out this last Friday and uh, the fun that that was and what the kids were able to accomplish with the cards. Lord, we pray that you be with us as uh, we get ready to jump into the study on Psalm 53. We ask you to guide us that we would be encouraged, that we would be uh, directed, we'd be shaped and molded uh, as your faithful people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are at Psalm 53, so grab a copy of the paper or open your Bible to Psalm 53. Again, as I said, that paper actually has two psalms on it. It has Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and we're going to compare those. So if it helps you, I printed out enough copies for everybody and then some. Yvonne, we sang happy birthday to Bill. I want you to know. Yes, you did. All right, Psalm 53. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge to eat, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So that was Psalm 53. Anything that you notice? Maybe some repeats? Okay. Anything in the Psalm specifically? Anything that draws your attention to maybe the previous psalm or maybe directs you to the psalm's coming? Ah, hold that thought. Very good. Steve came up with that without Tina here to nudge him. That was good. <laughs> Anybody else? No? Okay. So hopefully everybody's got a copy of that uh, paper I passed out back there that has Psalm 53 on one side and it has uh, Psalm 14 on the other side. So I'm going to call Psalm 53. Sorry, I just took this off a bumper sticker sort of, you know. No God, no sense. No God, no sense. I think that was not real classy, but it works. It'd be a long bumper sticker, though. That would be really weird. Okay, so what I want you to look at is I want you to look at and compare, if you've got that paper, compare Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. You will notice that they are almost, almost identical. In fact, the, word, the, verse, the verse breakdown is pretty close all the way through. Uh, there are some differences. So, first off, what are the similarities between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53? 
Yeah. You can almost go right down and say first verse, second verse, third verse. Right? Anybody see uh, any, any other similarities? The fools added that never change. And God does what God does. Yes, very good. All right, so what are some differences? Yes, ma'am. Yes. So Psalm 14 uses God's personal name, Yahweh. Psalm 53 doesn't. It uses Elohim. I'm going to make some hay out of that maybe later. Good point. What else? There's some other differences. What else do you see as differences? Maybe a location for the differences. Anything similar to Psalm 14, verse 5 and 6, and then Psalm 53, verse 6, maybe? Something similar, something different? Yes, yes, God scattering the bones is not in Psalm 14, okay? And it's split six, it's split six. That sounds like a football move or something. Bowling, oh, there you go. You see any other differences between the two? Huh? What about it? Okay, so chapter 14, the Lord is a refuge. And it doesn't say that in Psalm 53. Is that what you're saying? Okay, good. So there, there are huge similarities. It's as if the writer the, took the psalm and said, I'm going to use that psalm again and make some tweaks because I'm looking at a different direction. Okay? And so, um, but I just wanted you, I wanted you to be familiar with the fact that both psalms uh, are almost identical, okay? Yeah, because we're not sure what masculine is. Is it a tune? Is it the type of psalm? Is it, yeah. So, but that would be probably an indication as well. But we're not sure what, what exactly a masculine is. All right, so no God, no sense, no God, no sense. Here's how I'm breaking it down. Fool's heart, verse 1. Piercing probe, verse 2. Fallen folly, verses 3 through 5. And the prospective point, verse 6. And that's how I'm going to break it down, just these four parts. So the fool's heart, verse 1. So going with something that Steve was saying, the word fool in the Hebrew is nabal. Okay, and if you have, have any memory of 1 Samuel, who do you remember whose name maybe was Nabal? Abigail's husband. And so 1 Samuel 25, I love 1 Samuel 25 for lots of reasons. Abigail is a, she's a very wise and sensible woman, let me tell you. But I love what she says about Nabal. She's talking to David, so 1 Samuel 25, 25, she talks to David, she says, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. This is her husband. 
Anyways, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is his game. Wait, wait, I, that was my paraphrase, right? But I find that really interesting that, that in the order of the Psalms, that is now Psalm 14, been changed, been modified a bit, right here, right after Psalm 52. Steve asked, is it possible that he's referring to Doeg? It's possible, but notice the place of between, uh, so Psalm 52 is about Doeg the Edomite. Psalm 54, if you look at the inscription, is about the Ziphites. Both of those betrayed David, right? Both of those were opposed to David. And so it's almost like a double entendre. Verse, uh, Psalm 53 is actually about another person who's betrayed David, a Nabal. And your mind should go to Nabal and think about, oh yeah, David's provided safety and protection for him and he will have nothing to do with him and he, he, you know, he's just against him. Okay? So I think that there's a subtle entendre there that that's what you should be thinking if you were reading Hebrew. And seeing how we don't read Hebrew, I just wanted to point it out. Okay, so maybe not Doeg, maybe actually literally Nabal, the fool, who will always be the epitome of this. Yeah, d- very good. The sandwich. He's the meat and potatoes, so to speak. Yeah, or the tomatoes and bacon or something. Yeah, I wouldn't. Either. But I have seen someone in this in this room who happens to be in my family put potato chips on sandwiches. Okay. Well, so see, you do put potatoes on your sandwich. All right, so what does the fool say? As you look at verse 1, what does the fool say? There is no God. So one of those funny moments that everybody being, uh, being questioned for ordination does, they try to outsmart the questioners who are, you know, theologians and scholars and all that. Well, Derek Thomas was my questioner for for uh, my ordination exam, and he says, does the Bible contain any errors? Yes! <gasps> what? Well, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It contains an error. The fool's wrong, right? He goes, he goes, okay, smarty. He, <laughs> he says, yeah, does it contain, yeah, so there you go. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So you look at the rest of verse 1 as we're going to work through that. You can't miss that the fool is not somebody who's uneducated. Right? This is someone who has chosen to take this position of there is no God. I'm going to do what I want to do. Does anybody remember? What is the, the famous statement from Dostoevsky? You remember that? There is no God. Huh? Everything's possible. Right? And that's what, kind of what you see with this Nabal. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, we're going to go back to Romans 1, but what does Paul say? Yeah, what does Paul say in Romans 1 that shows you that the fool really is willfully uh, ignoring who God is? What is it he says? Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it says he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And I always find that interesting because, you know, 
when you're over at John Harris's house and you're in the pool, right, he hands you this big aired up ball. If you want to hide it, you're playing to keep away from one of the kids. You're suppressing the ball under the water. What is the ball always doing? It's pushing up, right? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's always pushing against you. So he knows, the fool knows, he just, he re, he just rejects him, right? The fool says in his heart, there's no God. So where does he say that, that there is no God? In his heart. Whether he actually practices, or, 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 or whether he never goes to the temple, or never goes and gets involved in anything public that would say he believes in God, in his heart is where he actually originate, originates this whole concept. Does anybody think about Proverbs? Think about Jesus. What is what, what does Proverbs and what does Jesus say about the heart and the direction of a person's life? Yeah, so Jeremiah, the, uh, God says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? Or Proverbs, guard your heart for out of it spring the issues of life, right? And Jesus talks about, well, here's what defiles a person is not what goes into them, but what comes out of them, right? What starts in here. So that, and then he lists this whole laundry basket of sins, of slander and sexual morality and so forth, right? It all begins there. So it's very, very significant that he says these things in his heart. You may not hear him say those words, but that's where he's, he's actually in this rebellious state, okay? So what is absent from the fool's persuasion? If you look at verse 1, what's absent from the fool's persuasion? It's very simple. It's not a trick question. Good is absent. Doing good is absent. Okay. What else? This kind of goes with that Dostoevsky quote. What else is absent? Huh? Good deeds because the heart is evil. Because God is absent from his heart in the sense that there is no God and so he's going to do what he wants to do, right? Very good. So how then are the foolish described? As you keep looking through verse 1, how then are the foolish described in the rest of verse 1? Corrupt. Doing abominable iniquity. So now it works out in their actions. What's here starts, starts working out here. Right? What's in their heart starts working out with their actions. What else? How else are the foolish described? What else? What are they missing? They don't do good. Right? We're back to that again. Right? Huh? Godless, yes. And because they're godless, then there's a, the standard is them, they are their own standard. Okay? So is there a shift in verse 1 that hints at how many fools there are? Yeah, from the fool to they. Right? So there's, there's a tribe of fools. Hey, that would make a great book title, actually. The tribe of fools. Yeah. The ship of fools. Yeah, there you go. Right, so there's more than just one. So he's not really focusing, particularly focusing upon one person. Um, but there's this, this uh, social pattern, the foolish social pattern. There is no God, and therefore I can do what I want to. Any of that sound contemporary by any chance? Anyone? Huh? It does. 
So uh, how does the foolish, so we've already talked about this, how does the foolish disposition show itself doing abominable iniquity, right? So that's how it shows itself. All right, we've already talked about that. All right, so that was verse 1. Anybody else in verse 1? Verse 2, piercing probe. So what does Elohim do? That's the Hebrew word for God here. Huh? Speak up. He looks down from heaven, okay? Yeah, seeing if there's anybody who understands, who seeks after God, okay? Yeah, so then on whom does, on whom does he look? Yeah, on humankind, right? And so what is he looking for? Yeah, do they have understanding? Do they recognize that they're creatures? Right? Anybody remember, uh, what was her name, Sher- Shirley MacLaine or whoever it was that was a uh, movie star back in the 90s? And yeah, yeah. And uh, just a funny thought that she steps out on the beach and she says, I am God! And you think God is up in heaven going, what? You're what? Yeah, you're just, you're just, you're creation. You're temporary. Right? So he's looking to see if there's anyone who understands. Um, so how does the second and third line of verse 2 explain each other? Here's the second and third line. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. How do those explain each other? You think about parallelism. Okay? Or brings understanding, right? Yeah, so it's not just, there's not anyone who has failed philosophy class in in college. That's not what the point is. The point is understanding and seeking after God go together. That was the point I'm trying to get across. The understanding and seeking God go together, right? And so it's not necessarily just academic aspect. It's actually a lived out aspect. So they're, they're missing that understanding because they're not seeking God. The two, the two go together. I already said that. So God probes in verse 2. God probes and it's a piercing probe and what does it reveal? Very simple. What does it reveal? Okay. Yeah, very... Pretty universal analysis, right? None who does good, not even one to emphasize that. Right? Okay? Anybody else in verse 2? Yeah, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Keep that thought. We're coming back. Total depravity. You Calvinists. I'm sorry? Yeah, dead in our trespasses and sins. Another way to describe this. Very good. So, look at fallen folly, verses 3 through 5. What have all done? We're back to this again, but what have all done? Okay, fallen away. What else? Yep, become corrupt. Together they have become corrupt. So there's a, yeah, yeah, like Tower of Babel. So there's this 
this whole social system where you it actually feeds in, right? It becomes this feeding or the supporting, self-supporting where together we become corrupt. Right? It's not just enough that I'm corrupt, but now we're going to we're going to make it a social thing. We, they, together, they have become corrupt. What else? If you think about what all have done, or what have uh, what have all done? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So the disposition, their inner disposition, is acting out. Again, right? It's actually showing itself and how they respond. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Steve's already brought this up. What have they done together? This already says together they become corrupt. And I... I think it's very fitting for you to go back to Romans 1. So hold this and go to Romans 1, which is a very universal assessment. It's not a... It's not a, an assessment of all this is true about all of you people, but not me. This is a... This is where we all are. Right? And so Romans 1... So just we'll just run through it. It begins, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of men, of humankind, right? Not just of your group or that group, but all of us, right? And it goes on, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is what I was talking about earlier, Steve. How they, they, they know, but they suppress, right? They push it down below the waterline. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature clearly perceived ever since creation of the, wor- the creation of the world and all the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Right? They're without excuse. We all are. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and God or God give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Fred was talking about this. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We were back to foolishness and fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images of resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then starting at verse 24 all the way to verse 32, you now have together they have become corrupt. Right? So notice that this whole communal self-supporting aspect here. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. God gave them up. Okay, you're pushing on me, pushing on me. You want to go this route? I now let you go that route. Pulling away His restraining hand. But now it's, notice there's a social aspect. But it's not your group. It's not, it's not a... It's your group, Nathan, not my group. It's our group, humans. And so it goes on. They just keep pushing. So verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, and so forth, right? So for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Women, uh, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. It's just, there's this... Move, this social movement, right? And we're part of it. 
And that's an act of judgment. God gave them over to these things. And so it just keeps on. Right? So, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I mean, you've you got to be seeing Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in that verse right there. There is no God. And so together they became corrupt. Together they did what they wanted to do and they, they did abominable iniquity. But Paul goes on and he starts showing you that he's not targeting one social sin. He's targeting all of our social sins. Right? All of our sins that show up in community. And so they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love the fact that Paul put that in there. So whatever else you can think of and haven't thought of yet, inventors of evil, right? Disobedient to parents? Yeah. And so foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, what's the last part? They give approval to those who practice them. I mean, you've got in, you've got in Psalm 53 and also in Psalm 14, and in, in those few verses right there, you have what Paul is gunning at in Romans 1, verses 18-32. We're in a heap of trouble. And it's not they're in a heap of trouble and we're better off. It's we're in a heap of trouble. Right? So usually when, when unbelief or just outright rebellion um, from some person is shown, if, the, if, the, if uh, the community around them is actually not on board, the, there's a, a pressure that goes this way. Restrain yourself. Right? But then after a while, sometimes it becomes self-supporting and it goes out this way. Right? And it starts and it becomes this internal uh, communal support to go do these wrong things. I remember when uh, Paul Long, who was a, a missions professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. By the way, his grandson is pastor of, uh, what, where's Caleb? Caleb Long? Yeah, New City, Tulsa. His grandson is at New City, Tulsa. But Paul Long was talking about one time going in to uh, when he was a missionary in Africa and he took in back in the day when you used actual um, projectors to show videos, right? To show shows. And so he takes, takes this gospel presentation into this pygmy tribe and it's showing the crucifixion and everything and this particular band of pygmies thought that was awesome. In fact, they had suggestions on how the, the Jewish religious uh, leaders could actually have been more deceptive because it was their social structure. It was self-supporting, right? And it becomes this thing where it just it consumes the society, right? And they saw nothing wrong with that. And so as you think about Psalm 14 and 53, and you think about Romans 1, together they became corrupt. We're all in this together, right? And that's kind of what makes it sad at times because we're all in it together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
It does spread. And so when Paul goes in Romans, this goes to something that Bob was saying, Paul goes in Romans, as I mentioned the other day, he goes to show how the Jews and the Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, are in the same situation. The Jews just put a very nice religious face on it, and the Greeks do their own thing, but they're all in the same place, so that he ends up saying in Romans 3, um, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? And to do it freely. Yeah, yeah. Great. So keep Romans in mind because um, Paul's going to actually specifically quote Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 in Romans 3. Okay? Yes. Yes. There's a distinction there until you go back and read Psalm 14. And I'll pull this out in a minute. But there is a distinction to some sense. And so one of the crucial differences, so I'll just address it now. Here we go. One of the crucial differences between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 is that Elohim is used in Psalm 53, but Yahweh is used in Psalm 14, right? The personal name of God to God's covenant people. It leads me to make a distinction between these two psalms. The distinction is this, is that Psalm 14 is actually written to and is, uh, is regarding the people of God. All of these crimes you see are actually in the church. That's Psalm 14. And then you come to Psalm 53, and it regards the people who are not the people of God, those outside God's covenant community. That's why Paul will go on to quote both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 when he says, look, we've already made the case that the Jews are just as damned and condemned as Greeks are. And so then he starts quoting both these Psalms. There's none righteous, no, not one. In the church, outside of the church. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands, there's none who seeks after God. And so Paul is going to make a very heavy case where he's drawing in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. So yeah, God makes a distinction with His people, but it, that distinction is grace. It's not their accomplishments, right? But then when you take Psalm 14 and 53 together, you realize that the Romans 3, for example, the condemnation is on all. We all deserve that. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bob asked if... Uh, in Psalm 53, when it says, my people, you eat up, uh, my people like you're eating bread, that that's the Jews. It is the seed of Abraham, okay? But, um, yeah. So what does, oh, we already said this. I already spent all my time talking about this. So there you go. Wow, I'm brilliant. Oh, actually, I forgot. I just had one of those moments. So how does Paul draw this psalm in Psalm 14 and in Romans 3, 9 through 18? We just talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
I bet you somebody's going to say that today in his sermon, something along that lines, probably. I'm not mentioning any names, but his initials are Wes Martin. But I think that's exactly right. And that's exactly what Paul, I think Paul's getting at in Romans, all of Romans, that none of us has a bargain with God in that I'm more righteous than they are. Aren't you glad I'm on your team? So treat me, right? It's like, no, we're all in trouble. And so if anybody is saved, it is by grace alone. And it really is by grace alone. And so as we look at other people, we go, and that's all they have hope in is grace alone, right? So what is the question in verse 4 and what are the implications? You look at the question in verse 4. Bob's already um, brought us to verse 4. So verse 4, what is the question? Yeah, don't they know? And Paul would say, they're all without excuse. We, we are all without excuse, right? Yeah, right. right and that's right. In the context, it is specifically knowing God. Are they without knowledge? Yeah. And so what are the implications? As you look back at verse 4, what are the implications? How does, it, how does, this, um, how does that work out? There's two things specifically mentioned in verse 4. Without knowledge, what do they do? What's the first thing it says that they seem to be doing? Yes. Okay? Alright? And it, it's, um, but it's a specific kind, okay? So they work evil. Okay, so it's three things, sorry. They work evil. What's one of the aspects of working evil? It's the last two parts of verse 4. What's the first one there? They eat up my people. Like they would be eating bread. They're going to target God's people. Okay? So, whatever. Whatever it takes to devour them. It could be death. It could be impoverished. It could be a whole host of things. So it's a large category. But what's the second thing then? They don't call on God. Right? So there's no, just, there's no orientation there and it works out and that they actually would go after God's people, for example. Did somebody tell us one time, somewhere, if this is how they treat me, this is how they're going to treat you? Anybody? Who was that? Oh, Jesus! Sunday school! Jesus, God, Bible! Score! Our Lord Jesus told us that. Right? So it's, it's always a surprise when Christians are surprised. Right, right, right. It shouldn't be a big surprise. But Christians are often surprised when something like that happens. And it's like, well, no, the Bible tells us that from the Old Testament to the New. Yes. Yep, we were reading that earlier. Yep, we were talking about that earlier. Yep. Yes. Yes, yes. Right, so it looks like they have the upper hand at this point, but the psalm doesn't end there, okay? Yes. Kind of like somebody's kids used to do that when mom would tell them, don't do this. And there they go. Did you hear me? What? Right, that's all of us, really. 
All right, so how are the foolish described in verse 5? I'll finish the rest of this statement here in a minute, but how are the foolish described in verse 5? Yeah. All right, so that's how they're described. It's really interesting in the Hebrew, it's actually, they are in terror, terror. Right? I mean, when it, usually when the Hebrew repeats a word like that, it's like bold, 47 or 48 font print, right? It's emphasized, and that's what he's saying. They are in great terror. Terror, terror, where there is no terror. And there's one of the distinctions between Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. It starts out with that statement, and it doesn't say where there is no terror, if I remember correctly, right? And so, um, so anybody know what Psalm, Proverbs 28, verse 1 says? What do the wicked do? Huh? They flee when no one pursues. Yeah, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When we were, we would be outside of this uh, uh, abortion clinic in Midland, and uh, there was a fellow that was with us, and um, you know, we're trying to talk to some people, but and we had worked really hard to make it a very a far more gracious situation than when I first got out there back in 2012 or 20. 2002 and so it was odd it didn't matter how quiet you were people were zipping through and passing you by and flipping you off and all these things and then they get out and they would intentionally not listen to you and yeah it was like this and so this one fellow that was always coming out there would look at us and say the wicked flee when no one pursues you know it was really an interesting statement just because there was a lot of running away even though it was a, the few times people didn't run away, they found clearly we weren't out to destroy them. We were actually working, would work with them and stuff. And so, but that's, uh, and so that's, that's verse 5. The wicked pursue when no one, the wicked flee when no one pursues, right? So they say, terror, terror, where there is no terror. Proverbs 28, verse 1. 28, verse 1. So, who is doing the action in the last part of verse 5? This is also not in Psalm 14. Who's doing the action in verse five, at the end of verse 5? Yeah, what is he doing? Huh? He's rejecting? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay, good. And it's pictured as scattering bones. Does that, I mean, that doesn't really impress us as much as it would in that day. But uh, what would scattering someone's bones be paramount to? It's disrespectful, desecration, okay? And so, like you'll see Josiah, when Josiah goes to uh, the northern realm after the Assyrian uh, exiles happened, and he goes up there and he destroys the, he destroys the golden calf and that uh, Jerobam had set up and everything, and then it goes, he goes over and pulls out all of the priests' and prophets' bones that are in the graveyard next by, pulls them out and burns them all on the altars. It was his way, it was an active way of desecrating these people who had, who had been apostates, right? It was, a, it was an, an act of judgment, even though they wouldn't experience it, okay? And so it's the same picture here, is that God scatters the bones of those, uh, of him who encamps against you, okay? 
So that last sentence of verse 5 speaks directly to whom? God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Yeah, you. I forgot to look and see if it was second person plural. It may, I think it's singular, if I remember correctly. All right, you pull it up. It'll be the end of verse 6 in your Hebrew. But it's interesting, this shift that God is actually judging against those who encamp against you. Okay. Okay, so it is the people of God, right? But, in a, but also as, a, as another aspect of this, Think about how the people of God um, are, are, are collected in their king. So there's a sense in which there's some of that going on. So you think about Psalm 110. So look at Psalm 110 real quick. And this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, by the way, or portions of it are. Yahweh said to my Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord is at your right hand. He, shall, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. So the king, the Adon, the king, is actually going to be the one who is going to, who's, whom the Lord is going to cause to triumph. And so there's a sense in which you look at verse 5, that last part, there's that aspect there as well, that yeah, they're out to encamp against you, but you will put them to shame. And the reason why is because God has rejected them. And then you, at least my mind goes to Psalm 110, for example, which draws that actually to the, the great king, Jesus. Okay? Anything up to this point? Verses uh, 3 through 5? Oh, in Psalm 110? Yahweh says to my Adon. And that's why Jesus uses that, that psalm to say, how does David call the Messiah his Lord, his Adon? Right? He's, he's, making a, he's actually making a case for himself being the descendant of David who is the one who fulfills Psalm 110. He's also making a case for the Trinity, but that's beside the point. Sir? Could be, yeah. That could be one. 
Yeah, I mean, it could be, that could be one aspect of how that works out. I mean, you think about, there's plenty of stories in the Old Testament where the enemies of God's kingdom are afraid and there's nothing tangible for them to be afraid of. They just heard noise in the trees and they immediately thought that maybe Israel had drawn up this huge army and they all kill each other and run off and flee. So there's that aspect as well. And it's not necessarily conscience, it's just the fact they heard something and ran. So it's a whole host of things. It can be a lot of different things, but that could be one aspect. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you run across that where somebody has this, has this moral structure that's conniving, lying, deceiving, and they expect you to be the same way toward them, so everything they see about you, right, um, they list, look through that grid of conniving, deceiving, lying, and all that stuff. Yes, sir. There is somebody laughing at them. Psalm 2. Right? Right. Exactly. I love the fact that Paul tells Timothy, by the way, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sophroneo, sober-mindedness, right? A part of sober-mindedness is not being afraid of things you don't need to be afraid of. And that's, our, that's a human problem, right? And it's a social problem. All right, so I thought this was great. So by this point in Psalm uh, 53, you've got it down. It's good. We're going to get to verse 6 in a minute. I thought it was great. This is uh, Patrick Henry Reardon is an Eastern Orthodox priest who was an Episcopal priest one time, long, long ago, in a land far, far away. And he wrote a book called Christ and the Psalms. And I love what he had to say because he's really a Protestant heart, no matter what he does outwardly, okay? That's what I said. He's, he's a Protestant at heart. He wrote this as an Eastern Orthodox priest. Ours is not a self-help religion. Well, that, that shoots a lot of evangelicals already. Ours is not a self-help religion. The Christian faith does not even commence except on the firm foundation of utter despair in purely human endeavor. We do not have it within us to find God. We do not have it within us even to begin looking for God. We do not have it within us even to want to look for God. Adam and Eve, with the taste of the forbidden fruit still in their mouths, were not searching for God. They were hiding from Him, and so do we all. 
left to our own resources, none of us can do better than to conceal ourselves in the bushes with our bare behinds hanging out, hoping that God will pass us by. What a wonderful statement. And Christians, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Yes? Sometimes we're aware of God. But many times Christians do exactly what Psalm 53 says. We say there is no God and I'm going to do what I want to do. And then we get caught and then we become repentant when we're caught. Instead of just coming clean and saying, no, I really screwed up and then making amends, you know, restoration. So we have to be, we have to realize Psalm 53, because because of Psalm 14, Psalm 53 has a lot to say to us about even ourselves, Right? So here's the perspective point is verse 6. Um, so what is the request of verse 6? Yeah, salvation would come out for Zion, right? I love the fact that here's David writing this psalm and he cannot help but think about the larger body of God's people instead of just himself, right? Oh, that salvation would come, would come out of Zion, right? And then... Um, So why Zion? Why would that be important? What was Zion? Huh? The city of our God? Okay. It's really Jerusalem, but it's more than Jerusalem. and becomes a picture of God's throne right? and God's kingdom. God's presence, but His kingdom, His rule. right? So we start talking about Zion... And as you follow that in Scripture, you begin to realize it's more than just Jerusalem. It's, it's this picture of God's rulership. Yeah. 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 There's a messianic aspect to it. Yes. And so explain the timeline for the looked for answers. You look at verse 6. What's the timeline? I mean, not a literal timeline, but, but you've got a time, time sense in verse 6. What's the timeline for the looked for answer? Look for the when phrase or statement. Yes. Yes. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Right? So it's not necessarily on our timeline, but it's when God does this, then that. Okay? The salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when he restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Jacob and Israel are synonyms. That's the people of God, you know, Jacob's name first, the subverter. And then Israel after he's wrestled with uh, the angel at uh, Peniel, right? But it's, so it's the same, it's just synonyms, right? So there are two commands or directives in verse 6, if you want to call them that. 
uh, where David got, uh, wants God's beleaguered people to get to. It's what he desires for them to get to. What are the two commands or the twofold directive in verse 6? Yeah, rejoice and be glad. The total contradistinction from verses 1 through 5, terror when there is no terror. Right? Total opposite to rejoice and be glad. And that rejoicing includes lots of things. It's actual thanksgivings and so forth. But it's also our singing. uh, All those aspects, right? Rejoicing and being glad. So it seems to me that the implied success of the king, which I think is implied there at the end of verse 5, and the restored kingdom, verse 6, they go together. And so it leads me to think of uh, two places. So one's Psalm 106. Everybody go to Psalm 106. Now, Psalm 106 is a penitential psalm. I mean, the, de- uh, the writer is actually going to go through a history lesson of how Israel has failed over and over and over again. God's people have failed, and he puts himself in the same context. And so he's going to be confessing Israel's sin, his own sin, and all of that, and uh, he's going to come to a grand conclusion of verse 47, Save us, O Yahweh our God, and gather us from the nations, etc. But I want you to notice the very beginning, verses 1-5. through five. Praise Yahweh, O give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of Yahweh or declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Yahweh, when you show favor to your people. Notice the connection. Remember me when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Okay? Now, he's not a very good American. Because if he had written that psalm, he'd have said, save me. When you save me. But notice the corporate and communal connection here. Save me when you show favor to your people. Remember me when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. And I will rejoice and be glad, uh, in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. He's wrapped up his own destiny, or his, he recognizes his destiny is wrapped up in the destiny of God's people. And that's what you see going on in Psalm 53, right? As God brings rescue, it's got for God's people, right? And so recognizing that. And so uh, we won't go to, just because of time, but in John 17, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, you can't miss the fact that Jesus says, uh, uh, these people whom you've given me, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world. Um, I want them to to be one just as you and I are one so that the whole world will know that they are, that they are my disciples. I want them to be one as you and I are one so that uh, all the world will know that I've loved them. Right? There's just this flowing in and out context that God's people benefit together. Right? We all we benefit together. Right? When, when there's a church that has a real moral failure, do you know who actually gets impacted by that it's not just that congregation who else gets impacted by that all of god's people do we're in this together and so one of the things that implies is instead of praying for necessarily the that um the downfall of some other congregation actually praying that all of god's congregations would flourish and thrive because we all benefit together right 
So, in a way, Psalm 53, at least some of its aims, echoes out into, into hymn number 493, We Have Not Known Thee As We Ought. I love this, this hymn. The tune may not be your favorite, but, um, but here are three of the verses. We have not feared thee as we ought, nor bowed beneath thine awful eye, nor guarded deed and word and thought, remembering that God was nigh. Lord, give us faith to know thee near and grant that grace, that the grace of holy fear. We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love Thou art. When shall we know Thee as we ought? So here comes the future. right? Verse 6 of Psalm 53. When shall we know Thee as we ought? In fear and love and serve aright. When shall we out of trial brought be perfect in the land of light? Lord, may we day by day prepare to see Thy face and serve Thee there. Anyways, Psalm 53. Anybody, any other questions? Just to remind you, there's cards up here. This is what the kids made Friday uh, at the uh, parents' night out. Some of these, this is not all of them, but this is most of them here. Um, Everybody wish Bill a happy birthday. It is his birthday. We already sang to him, so. Yes. From Father Patrick Henry Reardon? Yes. Yeah, it was a great quote. Yeah, yeah. It is. Absolutely. Great. Anybody else? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord our God. We who are fools who have said and said often in our hearts, there is no God, because we act like we are our own gods. We ask you first to forgive us, but we are so grateful for your grace that in spite of all these things, you still have brought us in and made us your people, and you claim us as your own, and you love us. We want that same experience and joy to be those in our, with those in our families and our neighbors who clearly are not, don't know you. So we pray that you would help us. Give us words to say, Lord. You've given us the gospel. Help us to have boldness and love, love and compassion to tell them. Lord, thank you that um, you do um, bring us. You will bring utter salvation at the end, and for that we're grateful as well. We ask you to be with us now as we go into the assembly, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit. You would draw us together and draw us to your feet together. 
that we may worship and adore you, and that every one of us, men, women, girls, and boys, would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in, his, in his name we pray. Amen.